forced to get off of home base. We thought it was too dangerous. They said too many people are getting hurt. There were 10 people that were taken off site. Other people have been talking about these fires, but it was so much more than that. Podcast 99. Hello again, this is Parks Miller with Podcast 99, and I am bringing you part two of our survivor story with David Blaustein. So the reason why I did a part two is because David and I were just getting to talking and it was just so fascinating and I really loved everything he had to say and I was really starting to feel like this is going to not fit really into one episode or it would have just been like a massive kind of like three hour episode. Um, and I really wanted to talk about his time at Woodstock and then also kind of his time with the documentary, with the Netflix documentary Trainwreck, with kind of his thoughts on Woodstock, because obviously, you know, Ryan and I have gone on and on about our kind of thoughts, our analysis of it. And that's what the documentaries do too. But here's someone who is a journalist, who's kind of, that's sort of what he does for a living is giving your kind of giving an opinion and contextualization to news events. Uh, so we kind of just let the conversation go. And I was just, I really loved it a lot. Now I will say that I actually recorded this one first and we got to so much talking about sort of the documentary. That's what gave me the idea to like, Hey, let's do one where you actually talk about your time at Woodstock. So this does have a couple repeated stories, namely his time in the mosh pit uh, during Limp Biscuit while he tape recorded it and sent it. But also that is a fascinating story and it kind of transitions really nicely into how he went to the medic tent and then he realized how insane the festival was. And then it goes into his confrontation with John Cher at the press tent. So I included all of it. There's a couple of repeats, but I think that you're getting two sides of this really intense story. Um, yeah, I'm really happy with this. So here it is, David Blaustein, part two. Hello, David. How is it Hello, going? Parks. Hey, it's, it's going well. Thank you how so you? much for joining us, Podcast 99. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I believe you you heard you were connected via Heather. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So. I was connected via Heather, who I did not know before until after the documentary mm. dropped. And that's a good story. Yeah. And it goes a little bit like this. I was uh, on Facebook because um, I'm old now, so I'm, I'm on Facebook. And a friend of mine writes, uh, I know what I'm doing tonight. I'm watching Trainwreck Woodstock 99 with David, tags me, and Heather tags heather and i said what? because at that point i would actually seen the documentary twice with my girlfriend you know we saw it before it came out and the only reason why i saw it before it came out is because i wanted to make sure it was okay for my 85 year old mother to see mm -hmm. <laughs> um and both my girlfriend and i were big heather stands we yeah. we thought she was one of the best people in the documentary so i i yelled to my girlfriend i'm like you won't believe this but my friend dave he knows heather and uh you know i played it cool i didn't do anything i didn't take any action but then she friended me and mm -hmm. then we we kind of became buddies i love that it was and it was this like the woodstock 99 facebook group no no it was just facebook <laughs> it was okay just it was just a, a mutual friend mm -hmm. and it turns out that Heather cuts his hair. Oh, wow. I love it. It's a small world. I mean, there is a Facebook 
group for Woodstock 99 attendees and mm-hmm. Ryan and I love it. And it is funny. You made a comment. Oh, I, you know, Facebook, I'm, I'm old, whatever. And that's definitely like sort of this opinion. But I think that to me, that just makes it more special to fi- to have found the Woodstock 99 group. There's, It's uh-huh. pretty active, it, you know, it, and it's been a lot more active since the HBO and the Netflix documentary came, have come out. So I think that it's very, it feels very Facebook appropriate Woodstock 99. It certainly is. I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> not, I, I'm just saying that because I'm around teenagers all the time and none of them use, <laughs> none no, of them use Facebook. Not at all. And I mean, honestly, at this point, that would be a majority of why I use Facebook is to be like, Ooh, mm-hmm. let me check out like what people are saying on the Woodstock 99 uh, Facebook group, which is. A Can I ask you something? Group. I know this is your podcast. I don't, yeah. I do not want to take over, but did, did I hear correctly? Is this right? You're, you're only 34 years old. I'm 34. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, uh, what led to your interest in Woodstock 99? So, so Ryan and I were roughly the same age, and for us, it was just out of reach um, in terms of n- knowing its awareness or like being aware of it. We would see, for me, it was seeing the CD for sale and being like, wow, that looks so fucking cool. You know, mm-hmm. I wish I could have gone to that. Uh, as a t- you know, all those bands I liked, I just wasn't as bold as you know, because Heather, who we interviewed, went when she was 14 years old. I was, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I would have been like 11, so really, that's really mm-hmm. out of the question. I would have probably been too scared to go at 14. Uh, but it was just one of those things that it was just like, damn, like we missed it, you know, like we were just too young and we were just like little shithead kids. I mean, I didn't know Ryan when I was this age. But it just felt like this thing that was romanticized. And then once I got older, I started getting into 60s music and I learned about the original Woodstock. And I think what really started the podcast, like I really didn't think about it for a long time, but what really started the podcast is is YouTube and the fact that almost every single performance, like the pay-per-view is on YouTube and we started watching them and we're like, holy shit, this is like such a perfect document of this Mm -hmm. thing. Like I didn't even realize it had happened. I mean, even when you listen to the Woodstock 99 soundtrack, that's been edited to sound better. But the, Mm -hmm. but the YouTube pay-per-view stuff is unedited. Like however it went on the feed. So sometimes it's even more funny than you would imagine. And it just truly was this artifact. And I think from those videos, I think what happened is that I feel like a friend of mine, Jace and I, we were almost doing like mystery science theater style commentary. <laughs> and we're uh-huh. like, these are so entertaining. And then when I talked to Ryan, it just it was like, we should just talk about every single second of this thing. So yeah. And turn it into a podcast and that yeah. keeps going. And when you, mm-hmm. let me ask you, so when you guys set out to do this, did you have any idea that there were going to be all these documentaries about it? No, I will say I'm proud. I'm proud to say that we did earnestly start this before the 20th anniversary and so we you know can claim that we we were starting this well before the documentaries uh came out you know and but i will i will also say i'm interested in pop culture and there are these kind of cycles of 10-year nostalgia cycle 20-year nostalgia cycles so it did feel like at the same time as we're talking about it and starting our podcast i started seeing 
you know, streetwear, this kind of culture is starting to re-embrace new metal. It's starting to re-embrace corn. Jinko jeans are like becoming high fashion mm-hmm. again. So there were kind of signs of it. I mean, a, a lot of memes. There was a lot of Fred Durst memes uh-huh. happening. Poor uh, Fred. Yeah, and it and that was completely not related to our podcast at all. So it kind of seemed like one of those things where there was this general American pop culture consciousness of like, oh yeah, like we're talking about the late 90s again. Right. I like how you had to say that, you know, we started doing this before the documentaries and before the anniversary because it you know, it's sort of the same thing with the Netflix and the HBO documentary because the the truth of the matter is and the general public doesn't realize it is that I, I don't know exactly which came first and which idea came first. I believe uh, the people at Raw and Netflix thought of it before HBO did. And I think they may have even started producing it before HBO produced theirs. And uh, so a lot of those interviews were not far apart. So I will tell you that the HBO documentary came out, I think, let me think about this. It, it was probably about five or six months after I sat down for my interview mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for the Netflix documentary. Right, so, right. Yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, it was, it's so interesting how it's just like suddenly in the zeitgeist and people are thinking at the same time, oh, you know, we should do a documentary about this because people really don't know what a shit show it devolved into. Right. And then that's where, it, I think that's where it got interesting because then, you know, at this point, you know, bef- I would say bef- I was aware of some of the shit show elements of it. And then once we started doing the podcast, became far more aware of how truly crazy it seemed to be. And then, but there still is always, I'm always kind of fascinated by sort of the elevator pitch. And that could also just be what you would refer to as like a surface level impression mm-hmm. of like, what is something, you know, it's kind of like, you know, think about like Courtney Love and Nirvana. Like you could take a very surface level, like, oh, you know, she she was that chick who kind of ruined his life. You know, like some people really think that and like they might not even know she was in this band called Hole that mm-hmm. had some fucking their own singles. And mm-hmm. and so I feel like sometimes with Woodstock, there was still that impression. And I think mm-hmm. that that's why it did seem to be a good time for podcasts. I mean, there was other podcasts that came out at the same time and then articles started to rewrite. I also think obviously the fire festival was kind of this amazing blessing because the failure of fire fest being so close to the 20th anniversary to Woodstock, you know, kind of maybe like, Oh, let's remember this other festival. That was a failure in a, in a much more real and truly consequential way. Yeah. And you know, I remember when the fire festival, well, it's, it's not that long ago, but when those documentaries came out, and I watched it and I was reading uh, some reviews online and people were talking, they were comparing it to Woodstock 99. And I just kept thinking to myself, no, that that was nothing like Woodstock 99. Right. <laughs> the two things have almost nothing to do with each other. But I guess in that file in people's brains, they they clumped the two together because it was Fire Festival. But, um, you know, the Fire Festival wasn't a scam. 
uh, Woodstock 99 was just uh, uh, the intentions were sort of were good, I guess, mm-hmm. but it was just an incredibly poorly planned event. Oh, you, you meant the Woodstock wasn't like a scam in the way fire. Yeah, Woodstock yeah. was not a scam. Yeah, the yeah. fire festival. Fire was festival a scam. had like true kind of Ponzi scheme esque scam yeah. where he's selling the $20,000 VIP ticket so he can, you know, pay for there to be booze or something. And he's just, you know, one step away from total collapse. And yeah, Woodstock. Yeah. Doesn't that, that at its core, even though there were a lot of complaints about the financial element of it, it wasn't like made out to be this full on like financial fraud. And it right. is interesting because there were two documentaries about Fire Festival. And I remember it was Netflix versus Hulu, and they seemed to be competing. And then it was like we got to scoop up like who can we get the the best interview for. And then I'm a little privy to some of the behind the scenes of these documentaries. And there is a third documentary coming out, and there was like a scramble to be like who's going to have their documentary out first, and then who can we get? Like it was almost like um fantasy football like who who's gonna be on our documentary and of course the great white whale fred durst is not going to appear in any of the documentaries um but yeah that kind of scrambled like we got to get this interview that interview and so it is interesting now we're in this time where it's like there can be three documentaries about one event well also i i mean i don't know about well, I know there's a there's a third one that was already out there somewhere that did a film festival or something. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what that one is called, but you, I heard you say I, I listened to your podcast with Heather, and didn't you say something about you guys are yeah involved in a documentary, we, right? We were involved in that one, and so it it screened at a film festival and is now expected to be released. But we, I think it's supposed to be this fall, but we're not exactly sure on the the final release day of it. So those two are the same. Um, Right. And, and are they, do they have sure and Lang in it? They do not No. Okay. So, I mean, I will, I will go ahead and say on record that like, I actually was very impressed with the Netflix documentary. Um, I, I, to me, especially compared to the HBO, HBO, I thought it was, I thought it was really, really great. And if, and since we're Mm -hmm. already in this space, like, we can start off because when I was interviewing Heather, I kind of lost a little time to talk to her about it. So right. I would love to hear your thoughts on the Netflix documentary and your process with that. Well, well I'm going to, since I was in it, I'm going to say it's amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, uh, trying to be as objective as I can and I'm, being as honest as I can, I can't be that objective <laughs> because I feel like I was I was so involved in it and I wasn't that involved in it. Um, you know, I did have the good fortune of talking to the director, Jamie Crawford, who is just a he's a genius and uh, several members of the production crew. Uh, I had an ongoing dialogue with them. Uh, and also, I had been talking to them for six months, I think, before they even decided to invite me or maybe it was the plan for them to invite me all along. Uh, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Uh, you know, I had a pretty decent idea when, when we got close to it, but you know, the, the finished product really surprised me in how immersive it was. I, I knew that they had all this footage and, you know, I, I had seen the HBO one, so I wasn't sure how it was going to be different than the HBO one, but it was 
totally different than the HBO one. And it's it's so interesting to be part of something like this and then go read reviews <laughs> and mm. people's takes on it. And, you know, especially the people who are like, oh, it's the same thing. Right. And yeah. like, well, you didn't watch it or you have some sort of confirmation bias because it's not even remotely the same thing. There are a few people who are the same, but, you know, I used to interview people for a living and I will tell you that Jamie, the director, is an amazing interviewer and he re he gets you he definitely it's an art form interviewing is an art form for sure and there's no real uh, right way to do it it has to do with your style the way you ask and question the way you ask questions how engaged you are what kind of an active listener you are and jamie is great at all of that and i think it really uh it, it really shows itself in the John Sher interviews. Um, and and by the way, I want to say, I think that the HBO documentary is great. Uh, mm -hmm. I thought they did a, a really terrific job, but it's kind of a, a different animal. And I think that one uh, kind of tells you what to think where, and, and you know, that's okay. And where I think the Netflix documentary uh, shows you stuff and doesn't tell you stuff, presents the facts and gives you information and that lets you draw your own conclusion. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, Does that sound right to you? That's very well said. Uh, I agree with your objective analysis, though I did, I did take some issue with the HBO's telling you what to thinkness of it. Only you know, it just it did feel a little heavy-handed. Not and as not to kind of downplay some of the. I mean, there was some bad shit that went down. Uh, but I I guess to me, I felt in the Netflix documentary, you still got a sense of like, it wasn't all peace and love and there was some bad vibes there. So I, to me, at least to me personally as a viewer, I just felt like it's still hitting home that there was some really serious stuff that happened. And I mean, actually, that's why I loved Heather because I felt like Heather did such a good job of kind of summarizing some of those thoughts and it you know hbo it just seemed to be a little more like they had multiple talking heads kind of going for the same point yeah over and over again and you know in netflix just also i mean they got some incredible footage so i mean some of that footage of the destruction i mean that kind of shows you at least that element how serious that was obviously the other really big concerning element to it was the sexual assault and rapes um and i mean there was a the story in the netflix documentary was really harrowing and very like i'm, I'm tensing up you know listening to this story because you're kind of horrified as to as to where it goes so i just i just thought it was really effective in that sense well uh, you know that production crew jamie and everybody at raw productions did a really amazing job of sourcing that footage. I mean, there was something, well, there were a number of things uh, that surprised me and it's pretty hard to surprise me. One of the reasons why I thought they reached out to me and I still don't know exactly why they reached out to me or how they even found me, but I pretty much was the only reporter that I'm aware of that was at the sound tower when it fell. And I was, but I, I was a radio reporter. I didn't have a camera, so I didn't film it. 
what I was doing is I, you know, I just hit record and I was narrating what I saw. And in the news radio business, that's called doing a roser. And so I'm describing what's going on. And the next day, that piece of audio with me describing it, and then you hear you hear the tower, you know, bang, and you hear all the metal clanging and lights breaking and whatever else and people screaming. That audio aired all over the country the next day. Uh, wow, which was which was pretty interesting for me, especially because I was a pretty a new reporter at that point, and that's a, that's another story I'll tell you about uh, at some point, maybe in a few minutes. But you know, so I thought that was the reason why they wanted me to be part of it, and I even supplied them with the audio. And when you watched a documentary, you I'm actually narrating a little bit of what's going on. But there is uh, this guy Scott, who I never knew. Who it turns out, if you remember, grabbed the camera with his friends. He had a microphone. Um, I don't know if he had any sort of like show or like some uh, public access show or something like that. But you know, he had great reporter instincts. When they were leaving Woodstock '99 to get out of the car because they could see that there were fires and things were going wrong, and they ran to it. And he recorded the tower falling. And I never knew that that video existed. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was uh, that was pretty compelling and and fascinating and and eye opening for me because like I said I didn't know it was there but a lot of the other video that they got too uh, was also pretty amazing it was it, it at some point I felt like I was watching a 3D movie because it was so immersive mm, it was very immersive yeah I we had found Scott's like unedited two or three hour long ramble on that Sunday night. Uh, on YouTube again and then I think I even found him on Facebook and I remember messaging him but now thinking back on it that must have been right around the time he was probably in production with Netflix so he was I don't know if that was necessarily it but uh, I didn't get a ton of information from him at the time but yeah found I loved that video Um, and you know it's also cool to see the sort of effect because now I feel like there's more Woodstock footage on YouTube, like maybe some people who by the nature of the documentaries come out are like, oh, well, actually, I had some crazy footage. Let me put it on YouTube now or let me get on this Facebook group. And I don't know. It's kind of cool to see something happen, like sort of happen more in in real time like that, where like people have been sitting on this experience and are now starting to be like, yeah, actually, I was there. So, yeah, it's very. Yeah. And I like that too, because, you know, we forget because I know that you're a person who consumes a lot of mass media. Um, I'm I'm making that assumption, but I know you are. And, you know, I've been a person, (laughs) I've been a person like that pretty much my entire life. And I still do that, but you know, there are a lot of people out there who don't. So there, there's probably more than a handful of people who went to Woodstock 99 who have been sitting on footage and pictures for all of these years and, you know, really maybe didn't think much of it for whatever reason or or always thought about it, but didn't think it meant anything to uh, the world at large, or I I like to use the word zeitgeist or, you know, they, they weren't aware. And then suddenly these documentaries start popping up and they're like, Oh, let me put that online too. And, you know, I noticed that too. There are a lot of people who suddenly, wanted to share their experience at Woodstock 99. And so I was 26 years old when uh, when Woodstock 99 happened. And 
when I start showing up <laughs> in the documentary or, you know, whatever it is. And of course, when the first trailer came out, you know, I posted it. Then I had all of these friends. I mean, people I've known for 30 years, but I had no idea had been at Woodstock 99. And here they were, you know, we were at Woodstock 99 and they all have their own like horror stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I'm uh, I'm friends with a, with a guy who is a, a guitar player. I'm not going to say he's not a famous person, but he's married to uh, he's married to a pretty famous person and who happens to be a rock star. Um, you know, my, maybe not a household name, but in certain circles, uh, a lot of people know who she is. And she's also a friend of mine as well. And he's a guy uh, who doesn't necessarily have a regular gig, but he fills in for uh, one particular very well-known rock band. And he plays, he has played in front of 150,000 people at various festivals in Europe and around the United States. He's certainly played in front of big audiences as well. And we had a conversation a few months before uh, the documentary came out and, you know, we were just catching up on some stuff. And I said, you know, I'm going to be in this documentary on Netflix about Woodstock 99. And and, and I I said to him, I don't know how much I'm going to be in it. You know, I don't know if I'm really going to be in it that much at all, but you know, it triggered something. He's like, what you were at Woodstock 99. Yeah, I was. He's like, Oh, he's like, that was one of the worst experiences in my life. I, I literally have PTSD and I cannot go to a festival. I can play on stage at a festival, but I can't be in the crowd anymore because of Woodstock 99. Wow. Oh, exactly. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that's, yeah, it's just people, uh, you know, can have anxiety just from being in a crowd alone, uh, let alone a crowd that goes off the rails like that. So... So yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, I will. I I am curious. Just we I'll, we can start to transition to your time at Woodstock. I'm really happy that we're we're talking about sort of the mod. You know, this catch catching up current day. Um, as far as like the the documentary process, did you have a lot of stories that kind of got left out of it? Oh yeah. I had a shit ton of stories mm-hmm. that got left yeah, out. Yeah. Uh, they they talked to me for a very long time. I mean, I, I don't know if you're getting it just from this conversation, but I can talk mm-hmm. forever. Yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. And I I do have a lot of stories uh, from that uh, from Woodstock '99. I, I mean, it, it was a crazy time for me. I, I mean, I should let you know that Woodstock '99, and you know, maybe you'll find this weird, maybe you won't, but Woodstock '99 was something that. I've thought about a lot and I used to think about it pretty much almost every day to the point where I had to say to myself, you know, you have to stop thinking about this Mm -hmm. and also stop talking about it because I didn't want to be that codger on the street corner, you know, wearing my Woodstock 99 press credentials, talking to anybody and everybody about Woodstock 99. Mm -hmm. You know, I just didn't want to be that person. Now, having said that, I actually have a lot of stories to tell. Well, well, that's what I mean. Now now it's your time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, so now it's my time. But yeah, when I got that initial phone call, from uh, a very nice producer named Sasha who works for Raw to ask me if I was the David Blaustein who covered Woodstock 99 for ABC. I Woodstock 99 had really always been on my mind. It, it was sort of a, I don't know, like a watershed moment 
For me, mm-hmm. uh, when, when I covered that, I'd only been working at ABC News Radio for a couple of months. You know, I was kind of struggling at my job. I, you know, I was going to this big concert event and I, I probably had a little bit of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also going, you, you know, what, what's also lost, it's, it's like because of, it's the documentary, it looks like I was the only person from ABC who was there, but I mm-hmm. was not. I went there with an amazing person named Al Mancini, who to me at that point was a little bit intimidating. He was our rock news producer. And he'd been there for a couple of years and he was a heavily connected person. How heavily connected was Al Mancini? Well, you heard of CBGBs, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So Al Mancini was a bartender at CBGBs for three years. He wow. was buddies with Hilly Crystal, mm-hmm. the guy who owned CBGBs. Yep. Um, not only that, he was he had been a DJ at WSOU. And you may not know what that is, but in the New York in the New York City metropolitan area, in the mid to late '80s and early '90s, it's uh, it was the radio station that you listened to if you liked heavy metal or something heavier. It's the it's Seton Hall's radio station, um, but they have a powerful signal, and Al was one of their DJs as well. And besides that, Al is also a lawyer. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, extremely articulate and uh, also quite contrarian. So, and I didn't know him that well at that point. And, you know, here we had to take this long car ride, you know, we had to take an airplane and we're going to be working together. And, you know, really what came out of that was I learned a lot from Al and we wound up becoming, um, you, you know, really, really good friends uh, after that as well. Wow. But uh, besides that, it was just, so much had happened during Woodstock 99 because I was going there and I was, I was a little nervous and I was a little anxious. And at the same time, um, that was the music I loved. Nice. <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, you know, also when you're in something like this, obviously a lot of people are going to reach out to you. Um, some are really going to like what you had to say and some really aren't going to like what you have to say. And a lot of people aren't, and not, not a lot of people, but there are certain people who watch things and they make assumptions. They don't listen closely. And I used uh, confirmation bias before they have confirmation bias. Hmm. So they automatically think if you're saying something that they deem critical, that you're shitting all over the music that they love and you must hate it, which is the opposite. Um, I actually really liked Limp Bizkit at that time. I I loved Corn and I still do. Um, I you know I, that was just there were all these bands I wanted to see. Even well, Our Lady Peace is not a, it's not heavy rock group, but they played there, and I was a huge Our Lady Peace uh, fan as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I was very this is going to sound ridiculous, but I was incredibly excited to see ICP and see Crown oh, Posse. Yes. The ICP set doesn't get a whole lot of talk. It's kind of how like the Grateful Dead played at the original Woodstock, and it's kind of not really in the focal point of the narrative. Um, but you know, ICP they got paid a hundred thousand dollars to perform at Woodstock '99, and they were able that money allowed them to fund their very first gathering of the Juggalos, which is, you know, their (laughs) festival. So like Woodstock plays a crucial role in the history of ICP being this, you know, one of the biggest cult independently successful American bands of all time. Uh, I saw 
I went to the Gathering of the Juggalos in 2019 and mm-hmm. uh, talk about it on the Patreon in very great length because it was it. I mean, that was like a watershed, life changing moment for me. That was. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like a little. And again, I didn't get to go to Woodstock '99, but there was a fire. It did get put out in a orderly way, but it felt like wow, they're just kind of having like a little miniature Woodstock '99 like every right. single year. Um, yeah. So I love that you saw ACP. They have one of the most unhinged, truly. I mean, that was one of the videos I first saw that made me on YouTube maybe be like, wow, I think that, you know, because again, you heard about the Limp Bizkit and you heard about corn and you heard about Red Hot Chili Peppers, but watching the ICP set on YouTube made me be like, wait, I feel like I need to now try and watch every single set at Woodstock 99 because if this is what's happening in one of the videos, like who knows what else is happening in any of the other ones. Um, Wyclef Jean, another one. Did you did you see Wyclef Jean? I don't remember <sighs> if this, I saw him. This is like a, this is like <laughs> a goal that, I, I don't. Oh, you know what? I did. I actually think I have a picture. Yeah. <laughs> come come to think of it, it it wasn't. It, I I don't think his set was particularly remarkable. I know they show the footage of mm-hmm. him inviting everybody to throw. Yeah. plastic bottles on the stage which was ridiculous i don't really have much of a recollection mm-hmm. of that um but you know i I, de- I must have seen him because i definitely have a picture that i took of wow. his set and again this is from someone who didn't go but the the way that wyclef jean's set plays out on the pay-per-view may, it it gives the appearance of one of the worst performances of all time it seems completely unplanned and it's not just that he couldn't light the guitar on fire during the Jimi Hendrix set. He invites this woman up named Diana and they perform Janis Joplin's piece of my heart, but he clearly doesn't like know how the song goes. And she mm-hmm. actually stops him in the middle of performing it and says, these guys don't know the song. They don't know Janis. And they, right. Uh, uh, you know, that, that doesn't <laughs> surprise me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> whatsoever i've covered wyclef a, a little bit i've covered some wyclef events uh, i i used to know somebody pretty well who, who uh did some backup singing for him and uh i i don't know that he's necessarily the most reliable person in the world uh, that's all i'll say about that he's a very gifted artist um yeah some people they have the, they have the gift it's recording you know yeah yeah so um but yeah that's Again, that's a little bit of a diversion. Um, you to go back a little bit sure. to your starting of of Woodstock. I mean, I, and I I do believe in the documentary. You kind of said like this was this was a very pivotal moment in in your career. Like you said, you had been pretty new to ABC News mm-hmm. Radio, and it kind right. of like would it be fair to say like kind of really gave you the like all right, I'm going to do this. Like this is giving me the fire. Like because you just had this crazy life-changing moment which moment in particular just woodstock 99 like just woodstock 99 in general yeah you know it's like you know i was i was saying before it it was a it was a big deal to me to go to this festival this was the first big thing i was covering for abc news radio and uh, yeah i didn't want to fuck it up yeah (laughs) you know um so i was gonna do uh, whatever it took to comport myself well be as professional as i could possibly be and try to do things that 
you know, maybe nobody else was doing. And, you know, you saw that play out a little bit when I went into the pit for, for Limp Biscuit, which mm -hmm. by the way, was not a big deal for me because I had been in a lot of pits. I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I just recognized, you know, maybe I'd probably had never been in a pit that big, but I'd been in some pretty big pits. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, at 26 years old, I really, I had no fear of anything. Um, I was a veteran of the mosh pit. <laughs> right. I saw some of the other radio reporters who were there. I saw the press that was there. I knew nobody else was going to go into a mosh pit. And, you know, my, my whole thing was telling stories with audio. And that had been what I wanted to do since I was a little kid, not necessarily be a, a reporter, but, you know, use audio in some way, shape or form to tell stories. And what could be better... <laughs> you know, for, for our audience, because our demographic, you know, skewed older, you know, news talk or, or, you know, news radio audiences, you know, and some of the audio would be going to, you know, our rock news affiliates too. So I knew it would be good for that, but I thought it would be uh, something really interesting for them to hear what it was like. What are the sounds of a pit of a mosh pit um, at a concert this big, but also at that point, I could tell that that pit was a little more violent than your average pit. I mean, there were things flying all over the place. And you know, that that really started with uh, 1999, Limp Bizkit's song, 1999. Yeah, love that. That was, because um, I, I, I remember standing on, on the side and that was pretty much when I made the decision that I was going to go in because it just seemed so insane and you know, kind of, I, I didn't look at it like it was violent and I didn't think I was going to get hurt, but just a massive amount of people um, there. I think there's a line in that song, uh, something about, I think like Fred implores everybody to jump or, or something. And then everybody <laughs> like, uh, oh, uh, I think it's now you motherfuckers got a reason to jump or something like that. Right. And mm -hmm. then everybody starts jumping in unison. And I'm like, I, it's like an earthquake. I'm like, oh, I, I don't think I've ever really seen anything like that, you know? I'm I'm going in there. <laughs> yes. Let's have yes. some fun, but then I, I saw some scary shit when I was in there. I, you know, I saw a a woman get hit in the head with a glass bottle. Mm. And that's what really opened my eyes to the carnage that was taking place there because as soon as I have when I saw that, I was actually recording something and I kept the DAT tapes, you know, that's how they got that audio of me in the pit. I kept the DAT tapes. Yeah. I hadn't heard it and I was surprised. And if, you know, if you were able to hear it, uh, which you're obviously not able to hear it, uh, I am doing, I'm trying to do a report and then it goes dead because I hit stop because I became very focused on the girl who got hit in the head with the glass bottle. And I wanted to follow where security was taking her. I followed them and it was this area, it was a medical area, which was, you know, sort of, it was kind of backstage to the side of the stage. And that's where, I learned about the uh, massive amount of carnage that had been taking place at Woodstock 99. I mean, there was blood on the floor right? and, and, you know, I described it in the documentary, yes. so I don't need to rehash it here, but what you don't hear in the documentary is there was a, another girl who was by herself backstage, like clearly frightened, didn't know where her friends were. She just got staples in her head mm -hmm. and uh, I was trying to help her out. And I tried to get security to make an announcement from the stage, which they, and I stayed with her until that happened. And then the next day, 
at the press conference, John Sher and I got into it <laughs> just a just a little bit. Just a little bit. And you know, Damn. they had that footage and they showed it to me. <laughs> And, and I completely forgot about no it. Shit. I completely See, forgot about that conversation I had with John Sher. Uh, he was definitely <sighs> under fire at that point, and I probably didn't help. There were other people who gave it to him, uh, you know, probably much worse than than I did. But yeah, that whole thing was pretty problematic for John. So yeah, man, you're just gosh. There's so much good shit you got here, man. Um, so did you? What, do you remember what you said or looking at the footage? Do you remember what you asked John Cher? I think I took issue with something that he said because, you know, as you well now know, during Woodstock 99, according to John Cher, nothing bad happened. Nothing bad happened. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, and, yeah. the Netflix documentary had so many amazing quotes from Cher. I don't think he meant them to go that way, but just, I think he said 50 knuckleheads. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, and everybody, I mean, well, close to everybody, a lot of the thing that pissed so many people off, um, not about the documentary, but the content of the documentary was that thing that he said at the end and how he just sort of shrugged off the sexual harassment and the abuse, yep. you know, yep. And it, that, that to me is also something that, it, that was something I addressed in my interview. And I didn't know it was, I didn't even know it was going to be in the documentary, specifically the thing where John Sher compares Woodstock 99 to a small city. Right. You know, it was only a few girls, only a few, mm -hmm. only a few bad things happen. Just a few bad apples. Um, bad apple, you know, yeah. no big deal. You know, it's pretty good. It was like the size of a small city. And, you know, my, my issue with that is, all right, John, a small city has something called infrastructure, right? They also have this security force called the police department. <laughs> so yeah. if you're sitting there and telling me that Woodstock 99 is like a small city and you're essentially the mayor, that would make you negligent. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it, it was it, like, it just so ridiculous. And, you know, I, it, it's, it's not comical. It's sad. I feel bad for the guy because I think a lot of people do not realize who John is and John was and his importance to the live concert industry right. <laughs> um, on, on the East coast, especially in New York. I mean, I think metropolitan entertainment, that was his company, I think. And, and uh, they, they were all over everything. And, and, you know, I actually used to really like John Sher. He, I got tickets to a few shows <laughs> through his office. You know, I started out as an intern for a radio station called K rock in New York. And that was Howard Stern's radio station, you know, pretty much when, when he first, well, it wasn't his first stint in New York. It was the second after uh, WNBC, but that's, you know, the place where he became syndicated and he became like a, a, a really big deal. And I was interning there and, you know, my boss in the promotions department got me tickets uh, to see the Colt and Lenny Kravitz. And, you know, that was a nice moment for me. Uh, I sat two rows behind Madonna, got, got her autograph. You know, I was 19 years old at the time. Um, oh. Also, his office hooked me up with great seats for uh, The Cure. Probably, nice. I think, in like 19, also like 1991 or something like that. Um, and so I had, I had like a lot of positive feelings towards John Sher until Woodstock 99. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, first off, love the love the early Lenny Kravitz Madonna connection right there. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I think that he definitely comes off as just trying to save his ass. And I think even I mean, it feels like him agreeing to do the interviews is is in a way like he maybe you would think like, oh, I'm going to set them right. And and I just don't think that that came off at all that I think he he it made him seem worse, honestly. John so, Sher and self-awareness know. are not friends yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, he's I don't know what his issue is, but I mean, he really it, it's an ego thing. I think more than mm-hmm. anything else. And, you know, you could even say, uh, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not a psychologist and, you know, I know a few people had some issues with me <laughs> diagnosing Fred Durst with the, the ego and the super ego thing. And right. that's okay. Cause and I, cause I a hundred percent stand, I a hundred percent stand by that. That was, a, um, I thought that was a great comment. And I do want to, you, you have mentioned this, a lot. Did did you, um, as the kids say, did you read the comments? Did you did you uh, get some negative feedback? Uh, a, a little, from- like I've gotten a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but I, you know, I have a weird relationship with that. I, I used to be a movie critic for I was a movie critic for ABC News Radio for a while and uh, for, for years, I guess. And I, when Twitter started becoming a thing, you know, I'd get pushed back there. And then I, uh, I wrote movie reviews that appeared on abcnews.com. I'm not saying that they were great. I'm not saying I was the best movie critic uh, ever, but, you know, and I would get comments and pushback there. And when it first starts happening, if you're not used to it, it can be jarring. But then I think, and again, I'm not claiming to be super smart and i'm not saying that i'm above it you just learn pretty quickly um if if you have the facilities to that uh these people mean nothing to me and who are they they're just people with an opinion and it's not anything that should affect you Mm -hmm. and if i had an opportunity to engage them i would engage them because Mm -hmm. i love i love to dialogue i love to talk about every everything Mm -hmm. and if I, if I have an opinion that you don't agree with, I want to know why If that's if you can have a rational conversation. And a lot of times when you see comments on the internet, they're not usually trying to have a rational conversation. They're usually trying to be a smart ass in some way, shape or form. And yeah. I like to de-smart ass people, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I guess. And I, I, I'm confrontational by nature. So I, you know, for me, when I see somebody who's attacking me like that, my first instinct would be to confront, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm 50 years old at this point, And I don't think that's the right way to approach anything. So I prefer to have a polite dialogue. So there has been a, a little bit of pushback. Uh, it's not anything that bothers me. I think in certain instances, if I felt like I could have a fruitful conversation with somebody or set the record straight with them, then I engage them. Uh, and uh, in other moments, you know, you just recognize immediately when it's not worth it. Well said. Now, to go back to Cher and Lang, I mean, I also, yeah. I felt like Lang also made himself seem really bad. 
He did. Um, and it, he wasn't the only one who made <laughs> him seem bad. And, you know, it, it kind of sucks to talk about because he's no longer with us. But, you know, I thought it was uh, really big for him to show up and do both those interviews. Again, um, I'm being I'm being biased, but I thought the interview that Jamie did with him was better than the interview in HBO in the sense that I think he said a little more. Uh, Jamie also you know, had that footage of the production meetings yeah. and he had that footage from Pilar Law, who yes, was incredible. Yeah. Who was Michael Lang's assistant. I actually think Pilar is how they found me. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but that, that's not, not significant. Michael Lang also said something that I thought was important. That was better than anything John Sher said. And he noted that they were responsible for the people in the festival, like the closest that anyone came to taking responsibility was Michael Lang saying, you know, ultimately we were responsible for everybody in the festival as opposed to, well, you know, it's the same size as a small city. So, yeah. you know, it wasn't, yeah. wasn't that bad. You no, know, your anal your critique of the, the small city comment or metaphor is great because it does go in direct contradiction to something Lang said on the documentary it was like, you yeah, know, we didn't really want to, get the police involved or get the military or have this authority. And so on one hand, it's saying, oh, this is hinting at this Woodstock hippie love thing that we don't we're not going to have the cops. And then at the same time, say it's a small town and yeah, a small town would have much more of an infrastructure and you would be held responsible I mean, you know, that's 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 a huge part of towns is, you know, the mayor like we got to get crime down. You know, that's like a huge right. election campaigning point. So to use that as sort of a statistical metaphor, like, yeah, I mean, so, someone's going to get raped. You know, it's like, ooh, that's just not really like a that's, good, a, that's just super, good way super to go cringy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I really appreciate your analysis yeah, and, of that you know and, and plus there were all the other things that they just didn't they, they really didn't uh, uh counter or figure that the people who were showing up were people were human beings i mean you i think they were so um they were so caught up in what happened at woodstock 94 because of the rain and all the mud and they're like, oh thank god we have sun all right you have sun but you also have a ridiculous amount of concrete with no shade on a decommissioned Air Force base. Mm -hmm. So maybe some contingency there, or maybe logically we're doing this like at the end of July, beginning of August, it's going to be really hot. Perhaps this isn't the best idea. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, the tar the tarmac and kind of... I mean, that was part of our podcast was learning, you know, what is tarmac and how how does that reflect heat? And just really a lot of a lot of kind of elements, ingredients into the, to a perfect shitstorm. Yeah, like a, a decommissioned military base is not really the best place for a festival. Also, just the irony of having, you know, giant fighter jets everywhere under this Woodstock name. Uh, all that's all that stuff is, you know, kind, and again, because you asked me early on just sort of why we were so interested in it. I think to me, it's just something that really the more we learn about it, the more interesting it is, the more layers there are to it. And, and there's a lot of nuance. And also, I will say that to me that I think that was 
something that I took issue with the HBO documentary that I felt mm-hmm. Netflix did a better job and something that we've honestly discovered at the podcast is the nuance of people's experiences at the festival. So yeah. I'll follow this up by saying that when we first started the, our podcast, we obviously were very aware of all the highlight elevator pitch, negative, really bad stuff that happened. And then once we started to watch more footage and get some of these stories, it was kind of, we had to accept that like some people are, had the time of their lives, you know, they, yeah, they, they had fun. I mean, yeah. you know, Heather was a great example of that. Right. <laughs> After, yeah. I, I mean, to, to me, that's almost one of the highlights of, of the documentary series on Netflix is Heather at the end, after we see all of this horrible stuff unfold and Heather make these incredibly articulate and astute observations, just be like, yeah, I would have done it again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, yeah, no, that was such a great moment, Heather's comments. And I think that also kind of speaks to maybe how a lot of people felt about it because, you know, and again, it's not, I think that it's not to in any way downplay what what happened to people that might be traumatizing or stay with them or you know the, the some really really messed up shit happen but also right. to just to allow room that there was you know there was so many people there and so that wasn't the entirety of the situation and that yeah. i think that that's just like a tricky play a nuanced place to navigate to it, be it like, is because you know but it's almost like a microcosm of the world because every day we get up and we live and we have a really good time and we enjoy ourselves. And, but somewhere else, you know, maybe a few doors down from you, maybe somebody in that house died. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody just lost a relative. Uh, Maybe somebody else is having a really bad day. Something horrible has happened to somebody else while we're recording this right now. We're having a great conversation and a good time, but it's a hundred percent probable is so right now something awful is happening to somebody somewhere. It's true. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, sort true. of that's kind of how that, that's one way to look at it when it comes to Woodstock 99, because there, there definitely were a lot of people who had a good time there. And there were people, I think, who were almost blissfully unaware of some of the super shitty stuff that was going on. And, you know, and you, you saw it, you know, you have people bathing and throwing you know, water with shit in it on each other, you know, being none the wiser, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they're, ha- you know, they're having, <laughs> having a great time. Right. But you also do have to remember that there were people who attended Woodstock 99 whose lives were changed forever. And that is not hyperbole. That is just a fact. When a woman is sexually harassed, that generally that almost certainly stays with her every day for the rest of her life. And if she was abused, that's even, that's even worse. And, you know, and then there's the other, the other part of that, which is just, you know, and I don't even want, like, I don't even want to say the word because I know that there are people who are sensitive to it, but there are things that happen at Woodstock 99 that destroyed a few people. And it's not just the people, it's their families as well, because survivors of that sort of sexual abuse, um, it, that affects your family. And also not to mention that three people died as well. Yeah. And you know, you have the with Astro World where eight people died 
um, you know, and that that's another story and another set of events in, in a different environment. But yeah, Woodstock 99, definitely 100% changed some people's lives and not for the better. Not for the better. Yeah. I mean, something like that, like that could, that could potentially, like you said, like a crowd of people, like that could be something where you're like, no, I don't ever want to be in a crowded situation, uh, uh, another concert ever again, uh, be around men, be even just the, the music itself. I mean, it could, it could have such intensely negative and just far reaching ramifications that you would just never think when you think, Oh, I'm just going to a music festival, you know? And like, there is this goal of, yeah, you want to have a really good time and there there is a threshold like, yeah, you could maybe, you know, get too fucked up and yeah, I puked all weekend, but that's not what we're talking about. You know, the the low, the bottom, it got, it got far more, it got far lower than like sort of a normal amount of bottoming out that should happen at a music festival. Yeah, and you know, you see it, they, they made the point and again, Jamie... Jamie Crawford, the director, doesn't he doesn't hit people over the head with it, but you know certainly he represented in the documentary the, the women who were be you know who were riding the crowd who were getting groped, and yes. you know that's not part of riding a crowd. You know that's not part of uh, pit etiquette. You know I know when I like to go into mosh pits, I I, I thought I always looked at mosh pits as organized and friendly violence and you know especially at, at that age you know even when you're a teenager or when you're in your 20s and you're you're still developing your mind is still developing you might be angry <laughs> about some things i had a lot of things that i was angry about and i just thought it was a really uh, safe way to take and friendly way to take out aggression and, and you know I, my goal was never to hurt somebody and i didn't go in there expecting to get hurt but if you're gonna ride a crowd and and it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman you know especially if you're a woman uh you should be able to do that in a safe way without somebody grabbing your genitals right exactly and i mean that's kind of the festival as a whole and that's kind of what the whole idea of woodstock is supposed to be is this this is supposed to be this place where you can let your freak flag fly and you can be naked or you could just take the drugs or whatever. And it's the whole idea is that it's supposed to be this place where you can a safe place that you can do that. And, you know, for some that just did not happen that way. And so I do no. think that that's and that's that is why it's so kind of profoundly disturbing is because it's. You know, it does sound like if you were one of those people where something like that happened to like that, I mean, that sounds just, it sounds really terrifying. I mean, I think in any situation, sexual assault sounds terrifying, but just especially with the added element of being in this crowd full of all these people, like maybe there would be the thought of like, well, is someone going to help me? You know, like there's yeah. hundreds of thousands of people around me and maybe not finding that help in the middle of all these people. So yeah, there's, there's some truly dark um, implications going on in it. Yeah. You know, parks, I'll, I'll I'm going to share something with you. 
you. So when when I sat down to do this interview, um, when we started the interview, I got incredibly emotional, and it, I wasn't remotely expecting to to get emotional uh, like I did. And I can give you a, a plethora of reasons why I got emotional in that moment, but you know, I think for me talking about sexual abuse and harassment is emotional and I'm not sitting, I'm not going to tell you that that happened to me personally because it did not, but it's happened to a couple of people, no, more than a couple of people that I have been extremely close to and somebody I am extremely close to. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of something that I take personally. And when I'm talking to you about how I know that this affects families for the rest of their lives, it's because I have that, you know, I have that personal experience. I've, I've seen it. I've, I've seen it change people and I've seen it change people in a very, very bad way. And, you know, there are people who can also take survivor stories of anything horrible and use it for something positive. But then there are people who will never be able to get past that. And, you know, it's sad that somebody took that away from them, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, when I sat down for that interview as well, this was, you know, I talked about the importance of Woodstock to me. It also, you know, it happened when I sat down for the interview, it had been like 21 years earlier or something like that. And like a lot of really horrible things personally happened to me <laughs> over, over the course of of like the 20, 21 years. And so at first it was hard for me to recall some of the things that happened at Woodstock 99, uh, just because that's the way my, my brain is like, I, I will, um, I, I block out bad things. Mm -hmm. I just do. It's, I think it's a talent. <laughs> It's a good, it's a good way to live. But, you know, at first I, I, I got emotional about it. And then, you know, I realized all these, you know, all these things that happened and I lost, you know, uh, an absurd amount of people um, in that short amount of time. And so it was, uh, it, it was a very interesting experience. But the, the reason why I was talking about that was just because of the sexual harassment and abuse and you know how i'm i'm not it, that's not just something i'm saying i'm not guessing mm -hmm. i know the type of effect that has on somebody mm -hmm. and i think that was also something that i had ignored over the years for myself in thinking about woodstock 99 i think when i thought about it i was so focused on what it meant to me professionally and personally that i wasn't thinking about what it meant to the people who were there who experienced some horrible things mm -hmm. yeah i mean damn yeah that is again very very well said and again just hmm, struggling with the words but you know it's just it, it i do think that there is sort of i mean you know i'm i'm, I'm thinking of his small town metaphor and how and how bad that is because yeah that that could happen in a small town but also the you, you are kind of the whole idea is this is supposed to be this idyllic moment this is supposed to be not to say that there's ever a, an appropriate time for it for there's never an appropriate time for assault or harassment but no. i i guess just something about the fact that it's really 
it's especially seen as this utopian moment. It's Woodstock. And so I think right. that that is kind of where the small town metaphor well, he, he's just, just going to really, say whatever know. is going to make him feel better and and i'm going to say something else about john sure and i think what i was trying to say earlier um, when i was trying to qualify that i'm not a psychoanalyst is that you know he's he displays a lot of the classic signs of being a narcissist but i will also say that i don't think he's a complete narcissist because i'm going to tell you i am positive john sure knows that he was responsible or he was largely responsible and you know a good thing for us all also to talk about is you know who was responsible that you know i think people watch these documentaries looking for answers right they want to know well how come this movie didn't tell me who was responsible and you know to your point and what i said where the hbo documentary is you know a little more obvious in what they you know what they think went wrong and you know who was responsible you know all jamie did was show you what john sure said and what michael lang said and he brought you inside those production meetings and so you could see you know it, the buck stops here with the leadership so it's always going to be the people at the top who are ultimately going to be responsible but I think if you're going to take a holistic look at who is responsible, there it's more than just John Schur and Michael Lang. I mean, I think there were a lot of people responsible. And, you know, we, we were talking about reading some of the comments. And, you know, I, I actually was bracing myself. And, you know, I said this to my girlfriend a couple of weeks before it came out. I said, I need you to be prepared to read some really negative things about me because I think Limp Biscuit fans are going to come for me <laughs> um, because there are things that did not make the documentary because I squarely, and, and you know, I'll say it here. I said, I said, you know, Fred Durst was acting like a dick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I may have even called him a dick. And, but you know, the caveat to that is I really do like Fred Durst. I know there are people who don't, but I respect Fred Durst um, as an artist. And I know some friends I have would cringe at me saying that, but Fred Durst uh, is actually a pretty good artist and knows how to write catchy tunes. Mm -hmm. And he has a very good eye for the aesthetic. He's actually a pretty good filmmaker. Um, I'm almost positive that he was the first person to give Jesse Eisenberg a major role in a film, which was the first movie I think he directed, which was called The Education of Charlie Banks. And I know that because I interviewed Fred Durst for that movie. Amazing. Um, and by the way, I wasn't allowed to talk to him about me. Like the publicist said, you cannot talk to him about music. Can't uh, talk to him. And you know, I wanted to talk to him about Woodstock 99 at the moment. But, you know, Fred Durst undoubtedly contributed a little bit. Mm -hmm. Fred Durst in no way, shape, or form contributed to the riot and the burning down of Griffith's Air Force Base the next day, but he definitely right. contributed to the environment and he egged the crowd on. And I also want to say this about Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit in that particular moment. In that particular moment, Limp Biscuit on that stage in front of 200,000, 250,000 people, whatever the number was, they were amateurs, okay? They were complete amateurs. They never played in front of a crowd that size before. Um, three, what, what was the name of the $3 bill, y'all? I think that was their, their first album. 
yep. right? Their first yep. major release. Mm -hmm. That album had been out for over a year uh, before Faith hit, uh, before that before the cover hit. Um, and so, and, and I think that was, I want to say like that was the fall of 98, the, the fall of 98. So yeah. we're talking, they're not a hit. They don't become famous until the fall of 1998. So we're only talking about what, eight, 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 eight nine, 10 months later, they're performing in front of 250,000 people. Mm -hmm. And also, if you know anything about Fred Durst, this is what he wanted so badly. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to be a huge rock star. And in that moment, there were things that he just didn't consider. He's standing there on stage in the middle of break stuff and, you know, doing his preamble and doing his little speech uh, in the middle, which I think is where he he made that decision, never being in that situation before and not considering that there are people who have been there for a couple of days who are hot and they are thirsty and they are angry. You know, of course, he couldn't know that. Um, he didn't necessarily take the time to consider that, not that he needed to be asking those questions, but he knew what he was doing. And in the documentary, what, what people don't know, but I'm sure people who listen to your podcast know, I mean, that set devolved. It got even worse. And, you know, they showed it in the documentary. They started ripping the sound tower apart. And Fred Durst is not doing anything to stop it. He's egging them on. He's asking them to bring planks over. And then he does what I thought was the worst thing is he gets security, you know, these security guys, these grown men to hold these planks over their head like he's a fucking pharaoh or something. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, and he's singing on top of it. And you know, that's, you, you gotta, you can't do that. I mean, <laughs> it was just, you can do it. Mm -hmm. And you know, there was, there was a, uh, one of the guys in the documentary and I, I, I want to remember his name cause I, I want to give him credit. I think it's Kyle, uh, Kyle, the security guard who great in the documentary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I forgot exactly what he said, but you know, you something is a metaphor about a, a bear. You know, if you hire a bear or something like that, that's what they're going to do. And I, you know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily buy that either. You know, there are bands that can be responsible; they can sense the moment. And I think the more experienced bands did, you know, it, it, certain people, people like the corn set was insane, but people weren't going around breaking things <laughs> you know ripping things off because corn was a, a, a super experienced band by the way i saw corn i think uh three or four months later at the apollo theater in new york and that was one of the best shows i've ever seen in my life by the way um yeah. so you know he knew what he he, he knew what he was doing and my, my point is that so you know limp biscuit they're not responsible for the whole thing they contributed icp um, we we want to talk about toxic masculinity, which is like completely cliche, but you've seen their set. You saw what they were doing. You saw how they were treating women that contributed to the environment uh, as well. And then we can talk about MTV, <laughs> you know, no disrespect to any of my friends who worked at MTV, but they were promoting the shit out of Woodstock 99. And, you know, I would say that the reporting and the way that they were sensationalizing the event, 
I think that contributed a little bit too. And even me as a member of the media going to report on it, you know, maybe I'm responsible a little bit too. Like there, there were a lot of contributing factors. It's not just, you can't, I can't sit there and say that John and Michael were completely at fault. Ultimately they are. I think it's very clear in both documentaries and, you know, probably in the third documentary that they made some very poor decisions in the name of profit. But, you know, it's a every there were a lot of parties there that were a little guilty. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree. I would also just say and even to the point of how there was this mentality at the time of, you know, there was like sort of the concert goer, the 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 new metal fan, the angsty fan or whatever, whatever, whatever you have about that. I just feel like to me, it just feels like a perfect shitstorm where there were there. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be some responsibility because something like there was damage people you know, people were very greatly affected by it. Um, but, you know, it does feel a little too neat and tidy to say it, it's it's a little too convenient to say Fred Durst, you know, he did it. It was all his yeah. fault. Um, yeah, you know, or, or like, oh, it was the the angry, you know, angsty white straight guys, you know, I mean, to me, like, but also that doesn't necessarily mean that you should let them off the hook. And, no. and with the, I mean, the, because to me, I think the promoter negligence, mm -hmm. the, I think that played a huge part into it. But then there yep. was also this element of this fan base that was like this very immature male who kind of had this like mixture of angst and hypersexuality. But then you can also go into like that was being fed by MTV, that was being fed by Spring Break and, um, girls gone wild you know and then you do have yep. a bunch of really aggressive bands playing and so it's just kind of when you if you really start to go trace all that stuff you're really talking about this huge web of influences and it all that that's why to me it's like it's a perfect shitstorm there are a couple there are a couple very notable factors into the perfect shitstorm but ultimately yeah it's yeah that's just after getting all this information it, it feels a little too tidy to just make this one one finger point you know yeah uh, i agree and yeah. you know but that's what we uh, i feel like that's what we do as human beings we just want to we don't want to talk that again you're talking about nuance before like the nuance of woodstock 99 as an event instead of just painting it with one broad stroke and saying it was uh you know a disaster which it really was you do also have to remember that there's almost like subgenres, if you will, yes. like within Woodstock 99, where there were pockets of people who had the best time of, of their lives. Right. And at the same time, there were people who are scarred forever from it as well. There you have it, folks. David Blaustein, part two. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did listening to him. He's a fascinating guy. He's a great interview subject. And yeah, thank you so much, David. Now, we will still be rolling out with some more Survivor stories in the future and, you know, just trying to think of ways to keep this Podcast 99 situation going. Uh, in the meantime, check out our new 
podcast Culture Dumps, which is very related. If you liked Podcast 99, I think you'd really like Culture Dumps. It's me and Ryan again, talking about all sorts of pop culture, strange phenomenon in the same vein of Woodstock 99. Also, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash culture dumps. We have a ton of Woodstock 99 content in there. Also, you know, please give us a five-star review if you are enjoying the podcast. It helps us immensely. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at podcast 99 official and at culture dumps. And if you went to, worked at, or played at Woodstock 99, please hit us up at podcast99official at gmail.com. Thank you so much. I'm Parks Miller. I'll see you at Woodstock.